Dr. Freddie Drummond walked out of the lecture hall. The students ambled past, careful not to make eye contact with their sociology professor. Dr. Drummond was fine with that. He preferred it. He never knew quite what to say after the nominal, anticipated social greeting was over. And then you pass the same person the second time that day. Or the third or the fourth. A polite head nod, a smirk, a furrowed brow, indicating that you were deep in thought on a problem. In his 27 years on this earth, Drummond hadn't quite worked it out yet. Which he found troubling. He was a sociology professor. He should be able to understand basic social interactions. Cold storage, how we doing? Dr. Wayne said to him with a smile. Drummond winced a bit. He hated that nickname. It was better than Icebox in college, but only marginally. I finally got around to reading The Unskilled Laborer. Well, skimming it. I read a lot for work. It was in the papers, though. I heard the president of the railway systems bought a pallet of them to hand out to his employees. 50,000. You really know how to get into the heads of the working class. Help the rest of us understand how the animals think. You celebrate yet? Take that sweet little rich girl of yours out? Freddie Drummond shrugged. He didn't like to bother Catherine with his work, and alcohol made him anxious, so... Cool, fun, Dr. Wayne grimaced. Another professor walked by and slapped Dr. Wayne on the back. You ready to lose tonight? Wayne smiled and turned back to Drummond, briefly, before yelling to his friend to hold up. See you around, Freddie, he said, before chasing his buddy. Freddie, another name he detested. Couldn't be Frederick or even Fred, it had to be Freddy. Long ago, back in college, a fellow freshman saw how it irked Drummond the first week of school. The kid laughed, and it stuck ever since. Drummond watched the two professors, shoulder to shoulder, talking about poker night. Every Thursday, all the men in the department, well, almost all of them. Freddy would like to say he had other plans. He didn't. Or that... He had been included in an invitation at any point. He hadn't. He just didn't go. Freddie didn't want to go. But he also didn't want to be left out. For some reason, though, it seemed like that was who he was. He returned to his dark apartment after the gym and threw the keys on the table, showered while the water boiled, and wolfed down his spaghetti while he skimmed a journal. Washing his plate and leaving it to dry, Freddy brushed his teeth, hung up his coat, and tossed his shirt into the hamper. He knelt down and opened the trunk at the bottom of his closet. He smelled the wrinkled jumpsuit. It was good for one more night. He put it on along with the cap and started out into the darkness. In San Francisco, there was a boundary between the north and the south where the cable cars ran. To the north were banks, theaters, hotels, shops, Freddie's apartment and the homes of all of his co-workers. Catherine's family had an estate up there. To the south were factories, laundries, machine shops, and the homes of the working class. The people that Freddie Drummond wrote about. In the guise of someone who belonged there, Freddie crossed what was called the slot. The metal track where the cable cars ran. He was dressed in the garb of a laborer. Because he was a laborer. It was time for the night shift. 
From Jason and Carissa Weiser, creators of Myths and Legends, this is Fictional. It was the end of Freddy's 12-hour shift. He had made $2. So, you're new here, he heard. He turned from his locker and saw four men. One was standing in the doorway. The other was talking to him. Two stood on either side. We noticed you're working pretty hard out there, the man in front of him said. Freddy pointed out that they were paid based on performance. If they wanted to work hard, they could make $2 a shift instead of the baseline 125 You scab? The man asked. And then he glanced down at Freddy's palms. Hmm. Softest hands he had seen south of the slot. I'm not a scab, I just want to work, Freddy said. He started bleeding about freedom of contract, independent Americanism, and the dignity of toil. They would never know it, but most of it came from well-studied textbooks that he had helped write. The men, not caring about the dignity of toil, cut him off. Let's see your union card, then. If you're not a scab, the man said, stepping forward. He demanded Freddy show him some proof that Freddy wasn't just some scab the boss brought in to show them up, to show them that if they worked themselves to death every night, they could get an extra 75 cents. I'm not a scab, Freddy asserted. Then show me your card. There was a long silence before Freddy bolted or tried to. One arm caught him by the neck. A foot swept his. Freddy went down hard. Freddy was a boxer in his spare time. It was one of the few hobbies he had. He was a big guy, and he could have beaten them in a fair fight. This was not a fair fight. When the men finished pounding on his ribs, they started kicking his body. They finished by stomping on his face and fingers. When he finally managed to pull up and wipe the blood off his face, he limped home. He spent a week in bed, all that time penning his new article, The Tyranny of Labor, based on his experience. He didn't return to that particular job, and he learned something. The tallest poppy gets cut. When it came to blending in, he needed to blend in. He might believe in freedom of contract and the dignity of backbreaking labor so another man could get rich from your effort, but these people obviously didn't. They didn't seem to take any pride in their chosen vocation. He reminded himself that he wasn't there to change conditions, but to observe and report back in the form of his books and articles. When he took his next after-hours job at the cannery, he could carry and stack two boxes, but that earned him looks and he could only guess, another eventual beating. He knew it was malingering, and it went against everything he said he believed, but Freddy held back. He only carried one box. There was a chapter in his next book on the art of shirking. He also fixed another problem, identity. Dr. Drummond saw one of his own books that the CEO had distributed to the line workers, He saw it in the trash, of course, but still, it was a masterful show of power. It espoused all the correct beliefs that Freddy knew to be true, and it showed the workers that the bosses were wise to their acts. 
Still, it meant that he couldn't go by Frederick Drummond, the name on all the books. If the workers discovered Dr. Drummond in the factory, he wouldn't be walking out of there. And if the senators, millionaires, and the leaders who ate up his book found that he was a card-carrying union member, his career would be over. No, he would have to go by an alias. William Tots, the union organizer repeated. Yeah, people call me Bill. Freddy replied with a grin and a bit of an accent that surprised even himself. The organizer sitting behind the desk looked at Freddy, a.k.a. Bill Tots, and his broad-shouldered boxer physique. It can get rough out there. We'll need someone like you, Big Bill. The organizer handed him the card that said William Bill Tots. Big Bill, Freddy slash Bill grinned. I like that. Everyone, this is Big Bill Tots, our newest member. Big Bill turned to see the men in the union hall and recognized a face. It was one of the men who had beaten him by the lockers. Freddy panicked. But Bill? Bill knew. He was safe. The man wouldn't recognize him. He was Big Bill Tots. We're all going out for beers. You want a beer? The organizer asked Big Bill. <laughs> Only all the time. <laughs> Big Bill laughed and followed the men. That, that is if you're buying. Freddie Drummond placed his union card in the trunk alongside his clothes. Here, he noticed that they reeked of tobacco. He thought back, his mind was still swimming. Seven beers will do that to you. His mouth had a funny taste. Did he smoke a cigar? He had talked to the men who had beaten him. They never learned that he was the rigid and timid Freddie Drummond. The man who had stomped on his face had five kids, with the sixth on the way. Far from choosing this life and sitting back in laziness under the protection of the union, he was just trying to keep food on the table for as long as he could. Freddy understood, actually. He understood that he had made the man look bad, that this wasn't just some outing for the guys that had beat him. This was their lives, and killing themselves for weeks on end for 75 more cents a night wasn't sustainable. It didn't excuse what they did, but Freddy understood it. He thought about putting that in his next book, but decided against it. His audience wasn't one for such sentimentalities. He looked at the clock. Only enough time for a shower before his lecture at nine. You're always researching, Catherine told him later. They were sitting across from each other at a swanky restaurant. She was having wine and him water. For some reason, the beer and the liquor just didn't feel as appealing when he was up here. Freddie Drummond said that that was the job. Catherine Van Voorst said, but it was Thanksgiving? Freddie shrugged. The animals at the zoo carried on like it was any other day. Why should the animals south of the slot be any different? Catherine half-smiled politely and picked at her salad. Freddie had heard someone in his department say that. It sounded clever when he heard it, but coming out of his mouth, it just sounded clumsy and mean. The only thing that had changed was him. 
Maybe Freddy. Freddy, Catherine waved her hand. She shook her head. She expected him to pay attention to her when she spoke to him. He could do his little research project on Thanksgiving. But mother and father were going to want him to come up by the marina at Christmas. They still hadn't met him. Freddy nodded. Of, of course. Of course. Freddy missed Christmas, too. He missed it because Freddy wasn't Freddy. He was Big Bill Tots. Big Bill had not only been working, but he'd stay south of the slot for hours after his shift ended. Freddy had always been eager to get home, but Bill stood and smoked with his fellow workers as they decided what they were going to do that night. Big Bill Tots came home reeking of liquor and smoke at 3 or 4 in the morning, that is when he came home at all. Freddy hated smoking, drinking, sausages. Bill loved all of them. Freddy was unsure about everything, wary, reticent to say anything, lest he should say the wrong thing. Bill said anything and everything the moment it came into his mind. Freddy didn't have friends, if he was honest with himself. He had Catherine and he knew people at work, but he hadn't had a real friend since childhood. Bill would die for any one of his friends, of which there were many. Then, Bill met her. She was amazing. He had been helping a friend move boxes, and Mary had gotten up in his face, demanding to see his union card. He joked around with her for a bit, thinking that she maybe wouldn't kick his face in, but when she got really worked up, Bill showed her the card. Bill smiled at her. He would see her around. She watched the ease with which he carried the trunk. Huh. Bill tots. Bill thought about Mary almost as much as Mary thought about Bill. And by the time of the laundry strike, which Freddie joined for research, and Bill, because he knew Mary was organizing it, Mary and Bill finally met again. Big Bill Tots had stood among the women, who, in the midst of walking out, had found the door blocked by the superintendent. Mary smiled at Bill, remembering his name from the union card, and that was all Big Bill Tots needed. The crowd of laundry workers parted as Bill bounded up to the shrinking superintendent, put one hand on his collar and the other on his belt, and tossed him bodily into the lockers. The strike resumed, the women rushed out, and Mary Corden kissed him on the cheek as she walked by. They ended up winning the strike in a matter of hours. In the months that followed, their relationship progressed quite a bit. Bill started taking her out after work. They had all the same friends, it turned out, and it was kind of amazing they hadn't run into each other sooner. Then, one night, they kissed under the gaslight lamp. The following morning, Freddie Drummond was back in the cold light of his apartment. He folded Bill's clothes, put them away in the trunk. He took a shower. After he did so, he sat on the edge of his bed for a long while. Bill Tots had to die. Bill Tots couldn't get married and squash Freddie Drummond's prospects. If Bill Tots got married, Freddie Drummond would be a polygamist when he inevitably got married to Catherine Van Voorst. He said inevitably because 
though he had taken his time, he met her parents, and her father was a fan. They liked their third daughter's wild, artistic spirit, taking up with a university professor, instead of one of her father's friend's sons. They voiced their approval for the couple to wed as soon as possible. So that's why, weeks after he had given up Bill Tots, Freddie sat at a quiet club in the northern part of the city. When his colleagues had learned that he was getting married, they asked about his bachelor party. They were bewildered that he wasn't having one, or at least no one had planned one. So what could conceivably be called a bachelor party lurched forward with a sense of otherworldly inertia. No one really wanted it to happen, but it was going to happen anyway. Freddie sat nursing his seltzer water while his colleagues talked around him. Someone, sometime, would say something like, Catherine Van Voorst, wow. Freddie would force a smile and say yeah, he really respected and admired her. She had so many fine qualities. The person would nod and then remember something that they forgot to mention to someone else on the far side of the table. Excuse me while I never come back. Freddie wasn't even sure they noticed that he left. But before he even realized what he was doing, he was crossing the slot, loosening his tie. Big Bill! The bar cheered as Bill Tots, arms wide and grinning, made his triumphant return south of the slot. People asked what happened to him. Bill shrugged. He was visiting his brother in Chicago, helping out with the effort there and all that. How they've been holding up without him? It's because things have been going so well for the unions that the tension south of the slot was worse than ever. The unions were gaining power, so the companies were bringing in their own private security. It was getting ugly. Hey, but nothing we can't handle, especially with you around. Big Bill's buddy slapped him on the back. Oh, uh, that's right. There was someone else that had been asking about him, too. The friend threw a thumb over his shoulder, pointing at the back of the bar. Big Bill turned to see Mary Corden there, under a light, talking to a friend. She made eye contact with Bill, then looked away like she didn't know him. Bill downed his beer, and by the time Big Bill made it over there, Mary was alone. Bill took a long drag from his cigarette, and before he could open his mouth to apologize, Mary slapped it. His cigarette went flying, and the bar started laughing, rubbing his face, and before Bill could ask what she did that for, she was in his arms, kissing him. They left within five minutes. Freddie Drummond didn't return to his apartment that night. used to go down there for work, didn't you? Freddie looked up. They were just pulling up to the slot, on their way to the club. Freddie nodded to his fiancée. Mm, mm-hmm. Long time ago. How did she know that? Catherine never took an interest in his work. It had been three months. Three months since that night. The night with Mary that he never thought about all the time. He returned from that night, and he knew he had to choose. He burned Bill Tot's clothes and union card, threw himself into the life that he wanted, a beautiful fiancé, respect and admiration of the titans of industry, tacit approval of his co-workers. He and Catherine Van Voorst were two weeks out from the wedding. 
and he was pretty sure Catherine knew that he went to work, but she never seemed to care what he did there. I mean, to be fair, he didn't really know where her family got their money, so maybe it had to be a polite rich person thing. There were a lot more of those now. Rich person things. Catherine's parents had bought them what they considered to be a small first house that they would move into together after they were married. A small place, but Freddy's closet was the size of his first apartment. Freddy traded his suit for a tuxedo. Traded get-togethers for soirees. It was a good sort of life. He got to research and teach whatever he wanted. Father, well, father-in-law, was a very prominent donor to the university. Freddie was fast-tracked for tenure after the honeymoon. There was an understanding that he would be department head by the time he was 30. Dean and even president of the university weren't out of the question. By day, he was giving business leaders the inside track on how to break the labor movement before it could get its footing. By night, he was like an educated parrot, squawking off the bits that made the monocled and top-hatted sort spout, Hear, hear! Freddie was happy. And he knew he was happy because he would tell himself that a few times a day. This was the life he had worked for. This was what he had wanted. This is what any of them would want. Catherine, too, was great. Just wonderful. She looked like a model from an advertisement, and she had so many admirable qualities that weren't just related to looks, money, and connections. So many that they would be too much to list, Freddie imagined. So yeah, who wouldn't want to be married to her? Oh, she was talking. Mm-hmm, Freddie nodded. He didn't catch anything other than that Catherine said her father used to talk about Freddie's books at dinner. Simply rave. Freddie nodded again. He and Catherine had this fun thing where they pretended to listen to each other while thinking about other stuff. It, it was cute. It showed how similar they were. Well, I think this place is dreadful. Her face had soured. She rolled her eyes. Now, please, couldn't these people protest somewhere where it wouldn't get in their way? They were going to the club. Freddie looked past the chauffeur. Meat wagons. Six meat wagons. Driven by non-union workers trying to break the strike. Police and private security sat next to the drivers. Clubs in hand. And about a hundred other police and private security. Security that's similar to, but legally distinct, from the notoriously litigious Pinkerton Detective Agency, marched alongside. Clubs in hand. Freddie knew about the streetcar strike. It was his job to know. This out here, this plan with the overwhelming police presence was right out of one of his lectures. The strike would be broken today. A hundred police and private security would see to it. Once it was broken, the bosses would find more non-union workers willing to step in. The union's bargaining power would be weakened, if not destroyed. But... The strike would not go quietly. Behind the drivers and the police and the private security, people he knew marched. He recognized the faces, the chants. Their chauffeur slowed and then started to back up to allow the drivers through, but a horse whinnied. Their auto lurched as a wagon wheel wedged in with it. Pat Morrissey, an old Irishman, Hard as a nail and twice as obstinate. If he saw Freddy in the car, he didn't give any indication. He looked forward, 
toward the army of clubs and shields moving his way. But the clubs slowed. More wagons rolled in to block the road. Freddy swallowed. Wow, we're in for it now. He was right. The situation had turned in an instant. The overwhelming anti-union force was now stopped in the street, with a barricade in front of them and the protesters behind. There was a shout from the street behind the non-union drivers, and the protesters swarmed. While they fought security, and Freddie once again heard the sounds of clubs hitting skulls, windows opened on either side of the street. Apparently class-conscious clerks in the office buildings saw the security cracking into the protesters trying to literally break the strike. Wastebaskets, ink bottles, paperweights, even typewriters, anything that could be lifted and thrown careened down toward the meat wagons. Savages, Catherine sat back, crossing her arms with disdain. Freddie looked forward. Police and security beat people senseless and dragged them into the street to arrest them. A man atop a coal wagon, one of the vehicles that formed a barricade, lifted one of the attackers, threw him bodily onto security, and then began chucking 30-pound lumps of coal at anyone who approached. But even though protesters had won this skirmish, Freddie knew that they would lose the war. It was part of the playbook. Part of the playbook Freddie had developed. They had numbers, the unions. They had people, but beat enough of them? Break enough of them. Shatter their barricades they knew how this would end. The security would get control of the wagons, and it would all be over. They knew. They both knew. Both Freddy and Big Bill Tots. Dr. Frederick Drummond. Freddy, cold storage. He was happy. He was happy with his life, his cold life where he had everything, everything he was supposed to want. He didn't need it. He didn't want it. He didn't care how he felt standing up for those in need. He didn't care how good it felt to be free, to be, to be with Mary. He had everything now. A happy, cold life. A good job, influence, all the money he could ever need, telling people how to exploit other people. Catherine. Catherine who watched with relish at the blood pouring down the coal next to them. Who, who could want anything more? Big Bill, that's who. All Freddy had to do was yield. That would be easy. Freddy Drummond had been yielding his whole life. All he had to do was let go. Freddy Drummond closed his eyes and Big Bill Tots opened them. Catherine Van Voorst shrieked as the man next to her bellowed, tore his bow tie away from his neck, and rose. The car rocked as Big Bill Tots stepped past her, flung open the door, and bounded onto the coal wagon. It's Big Bill! A shout went up from the streets. Eyes stung with blood turned to the barricade, to Big Bill Tots fighting to take it back, to keep the protest alive. His name traveled across the crowd like a wave, and with it, a renewed vigor. Big Bill Tots fought. His shirt was torn. His scalp flapped a bit from a place a club had opened it. But Bill was unrelenting, and it wasn't minutes before he stood, victorious, atop the barricade, 
he stood alone, flinging coal after the attackers. They didn't just flee Bill, though. They fled everyone. The horses were cut from the wagons and put to flight. A cheer went up. Catherine Van Voorst watched. As Freddy, she barely recognized him. Freddy, she called out from the car. What was he doing? Get back in here this instant. Bill? She heard from the street. Big Bill Tots leapt down from the coal wagon. His white shirt half red and ran. He took Mary into his arms and kissed her. Catherine watched as a dozen people came over and slapped the man on the back. He laughed with such abandon, such raw, pure energy and happiness. He was unlike anything she had ever seen. She sat in the car, watching, as he walked with a growing group of people to go celebrate. Dr. Frederick Drummond didn't return to work on Monday morning, or any morning after that. His apartment sat empty until it was ruled abandoned. His wedding was called off, and though she tried to search for him, demanding an explanation, no one heard from Dr. Frederick Drummond ever again. No one heard from Freddie Drummond, but across the West Coast, everyone knew about a man named Big Bill Tots. He made business owners and titans of industry shake in fear. When he showed up at a strike or a demonstration, everyone found themselves reinvigorated, renewed. He and Mary, married, organized countless successful movements, were both elected presidents of their labor unions, and most importantly to either of them, were happy together. So this was an interesting story. The original is very focused on class and the politics of the time. And while we included that, I like the more psychological side of the story. It's almost bizarre how truly different Big Bill is from Freddy. And like a few different analyses of the story have mentioned, I agree that Freddy gets a happy ending and should be Big Bill. It's strange, though, to think that there could be another you inside you. That there could be someone so different that they're anathema to everything you've built yourself up to be, but that they are the real you. I think that there are better ways to meet that person than going to a completely different part of the city and living a double life or getting in fights atop coal wagons. Just get out there. Try new things. You never know what you might find or who you might meet. You might even meet yourself. Okay, that was extremely cheesy. I'm sorry, but I think the point still stands, so I'm going to leave it in. Today's story was based on South of the Slot, short story by Jack London. Fictional is a next pod production by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Breakmaster Cylinder. In two weeks, we will be having our season finale. Then we'll be back in 2023. So no worries, fictional isn't going anywhere. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>